Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm happy to be back with another episode for you this week. Um, get it, we got a lot going on, um, short, short staff tonight, but that's okay because we're going to be full of some great topic um, that Sam came up with. And um, without further ado, let's bring Sam on the call. Hey, Sam. Hey there. How is everybody? We've got Dr. Joe with us. Hello, Dr. Joe. Hey, guys. Glad to be here, as always. Yep. So it's just the three of us tonight, but that's just fine. We're going to talk a bit about uh, mental health and disasters, but not just the mental health issues that are caused by the disaster, but what about patients that have mental health issues going in? So I don't think that's something we talk about. I don't think so either. I think that's that's a that's a, actually a pretty fresh topic and brings instantly some questions to mind about um, managing those patients and identifying those patients. So we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that when you yep. bring them up. Yep, you bet. Well, you know, any disaster is going to create, I don't hate to say mental health problems, but it's going to create anxiety. You know, you're displaced from your home. You, you may have lost family members. You certainly lost stuff. Um, everybody reacts to that differently, but it can end up eventually becoming PTSD in a worst-case scenario, or certainly you know have some long-term effects. But it, it it could be anything. It could be a flood or or something like that where shelters are required for a certain period of time. So, Joe. When you've done USAR evacuations, have you run across that very much where you may have found somebody that you rescued that already has anxiety issues or, you know, stuff like that that's being exacerbated by this disaster? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's actually quite common. You know, the, the, the challenge for folks with uh, uh, mental health issues is uh, access to care, whether that's uh, medications or um, a therapist or uh, just a safe place to be are often quite challenging. And, you know, when, when the, the infrastructure is taken out from under you, uh, in many ways, the pharmacies close, I can't get my medicines, they all washed away, uh, the phones don't work, I can't make it to my group session, etc. Um, it's really, really difficult for folks with um, uh, mental health issues to try to cope with just that, apart from my house is washed away, I have nowhere to stay, the grocery store is closed, you know, all the other myriad of things that are going on. Well, let's assume that there are shelters set up, um, and, and you mentioned them having no meds. So you get a lot of these patients who are not on meds. They're going to be totally different than they are when they're on meds. And it may take a while to get them assessed and to get those meds for them. So they go into a shelter. Do you typically see, and Jamie, this is for you too, do you typically see situations where there is a mental health provider that can do a, an appropriate assessment on someone like this? I think that that's never as robust as we would like to see. Um, you know, I, I think we're much better at that than we used to be. Uh, I can think, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, at Surfside, where uh, we had lots of folks there who were 
literally present in support of mental health issues. Uh, but, you know, the, the situation there was a little bit different in that once you got a block or two away from that disaster, the infrastructure was perfectly normal. So, you know, folks could get uh, medications refilled, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then I think of somewhere like Kentucky where, uh, you know, power grids are down and pharmacies are closed and, uh, their medications, as well as their house and most of their life, may have washed down the, the creek. And, you know, those folks have a real challenge in, one, accessing care, and two, accessing the infrastructure that supports the care. So I, I think for those people, uh, preparation is phenomenally more impactful than it is for many others just because they need to be thinking ahead and in many instances due to their mental illness that they're they're not very good at that for example and so they they may struggle with having a month's worth of medication you know at, at home ready to go in a location that's not going to get washed away by the floods and a uh, um you know, a way not to uh, impact the um, uh, their their ability to get medicines refilled or access a counselor or whatever. Yeah. So Jamie reminded us that Surfside was the condo collapse. So I can see what you're saying about outside of the disaster area. You know, the infrastructure was still there. But God forbid there's a mental health inpatient facility that needs to be evacuated, now what do you do? You know, is this something where, <laughs> you know, you can take these people into a shelter with the rest of the population or not, maybe some of them? Uh, have you ever run across anything like that? Well, we've certainly had issues like that. You know, I, I think the challenge there is, is very similar to um, folks who are, for example, in a nursing home. Uh, in that it, it's a relatively specialized area of medical care. Uh, it is not easily reproducible and applicable to the general population. So they don't just need somewhere to stay and, you know, a, a happy meal and some clothes and a bed. They need much more than that. And, and already, those resources are very hard to come by just in the in the when things are working at their best they're very hard to come by so you know a situation a disaster etc that disrupts that stuff is uh, the ripples of that flow out quite dramatically and have have great impact on those folks yeah I have another question on that but Jamie Get your, get your, your true sense so far. Well, I, I think that, you know, it's much like you have with a nursing home relocating um, patients, at least with an inpatient mental health facility, you have the existing infrastructure of the staff of that facility, at least in the short term. Um, so that may be partially helpful for rescuers to, to utilize the resources that they have and, um, find ways to to 
maybe keep them on staff in some way, shape, or form, at least some of them, to um, help manage the patients with familiarity because familiar faces can be an important part of um, mental health care in that inpatient facility. Well, you know, this reminds me of 2007 when San Diego was catching fire and there were a number of fires there. And I, thank you very much, have just had just created the California State Medical Assistance Team and, and we were put into, put into action as our first deployment. Well, our, our medical director for the state had gone ahead of us. And when he got there, he found somebody had dumped like a whole room full of elderly people from a nursing home and there was nobody there taking care of them. So he had to kind of take that on himself because there wasn't anybody there yet. And we, you know, when we finally got there, it's like, you're kidding me. Well, by then he had, he had found another, you know, other resources because we also put in the ambulance strike team, uh, which was a, another new thing we had just created. And, uh, you know, that came in real handy as far as getting these people off to a facility that they needed to be in. Um, but, it, you know, what you were saying earlier, Joe, what about comorbidities um, with these folks? I mean, you know, they have mental health issues, but they may also, especially the, the older ones, may have diabetes and all these other kinds of things that may have an effect on the whole situation here. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point, Sam. You know, the, those facilities are already uh, in, in uh, hard to find uh, that can take care of the, the medical issues as well as the psychiatric issues for many of these patients. And, you know, the, it, it, it's, it's the challenge of the more specialized the care the, the fewer people do it, the more infrastructure it takes to get it done, um, the more equipment, space, et cetera, it does to get all that done. And, and the more challenging that becomes in a disaster situation where all of that disappears. And you can't just reach out to anybody to be able to fill in many of those positions. So uh, it, it really becomes quite a challenge to put that infrastructure back together quickly in order to take care of those folks in a disaster situation. Exactly. And even though, you know, on the federal side, we know what the components of our team are. If you're dealing with local resources, uh, you, you know, it could be just about anything. Jamie, you had a question. Yeah, I have a question for you, Joe, because you know, I, I, I'm guessing that in your, in your USAR team, like Tennessee Task Force One, um, is there a dedicated um, mental health professional that's part of your team, or does that really fall to you as the ER doc, you know, jack-of-all-trades kind of approach to providing emergency care in the field? That's a great question, Jamie, uh, and the short answer is no. We do not have a dedicated mental health professional uh, that is part of the team. It generally falls to uh, the medical folks uh, on the team, as well as the rest of the guys who uh, have a great appreciation for the challenges that uh, we face in the field. Um, we do have a lot of resources at home that uh, are of value to us and that we can reach back to. But at the same time, uh, you know, if we're three states away, um, they're great for telephone consultation and, and direction and input, et cetera. But there's just no way for them to be able to do 
any kind of uh, field work uh, to, to help those folks. Mike, yeah, Mike, because I have the follow-up question would be, um, what about training specific for um, children and adults with special needs? I'm thinking specifically of people um, that may be somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, you know, there's some specific communications issues um, as well as anxiety and, and of course, the, the, the issues that they may have with different textures, um, temperatures and things like that when you're dealing with cold water or getting into a boat that's rocking or things like that. Um, do you, what kind of training is available or is there something that USAR teams look at when they're dealing with, you know, how do you get that person into the rescue craft or into the out of the hole or whatever that may be? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's so many issues here. It's hard to sort of delayer this. Um, your, your points are all spot on uh, whether it's behavioral issues uh, issues related to understanding, anxiety, uh, other mental illnesses that that uh, often uh, display themselves, particularly when people get stressed out and are in situations that they're not comfortable with, don't understand, or are new to them. Um, the the resources for the team are not nearly as deep as I would like. Uh, I, I would uh, I, I think we could spend incredible amounts of time. Uh, trying to prepare for individual situations. I, I think we benefit from uh, a lot of really uh, wonderful people uh, on the teams that are, are willing to um, do whatever needs to be done to make certain that people feel as comfortable as they can make them and cared for and safe and uh, that, that we're going to do the right thing by them. Uh, and I think that goes a long way, even though the, there may not be specific training related to that. Well, that brings up a good point because people on the spectrum do not like change. They do not like any change in their routine, their environment. And I can imagine that would not bode well, especially if they've lost their caregiver at some point in time. Um, that would be really, really difficult. It would be really helpful to have somebody you know, trained to deal with them. But like you said, Joe, it's, you know, can't have trained people deal, you know, that, that, you know, for each of these situations you run into. But another thing I thought about, too, was what about these patients that come into a shelter and become violent because they're not on their meds? Now you've got a risk to providers, to, you know, the first responders who may transport them, to the people. I, I just remember all this because I, I'm trying to remember whether it was Red Cross or DMAT where we discussed this quite a bit because I did a lot of shelter management back then. You know, what do you do? Do you have people that can provide security for something when that, when that happens? Because you can call police, but they may or may not be available. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the, the scenarios here get get pretty crazy, uh, particularly when um, folks who are under tremendous stress uh, from loss of structure, loss of support, loss of loved ones, loss of medication, et cetera, uh, are, are suddenly thrust into situations that are very uncomfortable for them, make them very anxious and uh, 
make it very challenging for them to to function in uh, and at the same time balancing concerns like that against security for uh, a shelter in general where there's lots and lots and lots of people who uh, have lost everything uh, and, and I, I mean I'm thinking now of the folks in Kentucky that were literally sleeping on pallets on the floor in a uh, a sporting complex, uh, you know, a basketball arena, basically, um, and, and sort of pulling all those people together uh, in a fairly indiscriminate, you know, situation where, um, although there were some mental health conversations ongoing, I, I don't know how specifically detail the mental health screening was for a lot of folks and, and the concerns that, um, you know, somebody who could get so stressed and out of sorts in a situation like that might might have some uh, behavior that was completely inappropriate. Well, and it, it makes me think of my team at the Superdome during Katrina. Um, that got completely out of control to the extent that the team just had to leave. That's a long story there. Jamie, you had a comment. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that we can kind of turn this around and look at it as a preparedness question rather than a response question um, is, you know, if you are in an area that has an, in an inpatient mental health facility or even a large outpatient population in, in some parts of your community, um, there are opportunities here to train with that staff um, ahead of time and have this conversation, you know, and, you know, sand table it really to kind of go through the process of how would we go about evacuating these people. Um, talking to your local school systems about special needs children um, that might be on the autism spectrum and how they would re the educators would recommend um, managing those specific patients. Um, I mean, we do it, you know, you do pre-plans for buildings as a fire department all the time. Um, there's no reason you can't pre-plan for special needs patients in your communities. And I know a lot of a lot of disaster plans and emergency plans for areas often include um, shut-ins, managing patients that are shut-ins, managing patients with special needs that can't evacuate easily on their own. Yeah, that's a whole huge subject in and of, it, in and of itself. Joe? I think that's a brilliant idea, Jamie. You know, it, it really is about... Uh, working on the preparedness end of this uh, because the challenges are frequently overwhelming on the backside of it if you haven't put something in place ahead of time. Uh, and, and the more those situations tend to degenerate, the, the more challenging the situations become, whether people get more and more anxious to the point of uh, inappropriate behaviors um, and, and the need for medication to be able to help um, help them continue to function at the highest level they can function, um, especially in a situation that really demands functioning at a very high level so that you can expedite your own recovery, your family's recovery, your your neighborhood's recovery 
as quickly as possible. So it, it really needs a lot of pre-planning and pre-discussion to make that work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think all first responders should at least know psychological first aid, because <clears throat> just about everybody in a disaster, well, I could say everybody in a disaster needs that. Um, see what the, you know, if it's something somewhat isolated, like the condo collapse, where you have resources that are functioning outside of that, you know, learn what the resources are such that you can call them into play. Um, you know, having links and referral mechanisms, there, there's a lot of things. Jeremy, I think you could think of some more. Well, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, you could even talk to the, the specific families in these situations and talk to them about role-playing, you know, a disaster plan with within the family. Um, where are you going to go? Where are you going to meet um, if, if there's a problem at the house? So you're going to go to the neighbor's front porch. That's what, that's what we did with our kids when they were little was if there was a problem in the house, if the house was on fire or something, they were to leave the house and wait for us on the front porch of the neighbor's house. And, of course, ring the bell and let the neighbors know that they were there. But it was important for us to have that plan. And I think talking with them about it gave them an, gave them a, something to do. And I think that that can, be, that can be something that can be done at an individual level with each of these families so that when, you know, if, if federal resources show up and you've got the local responders that go, oh, yeah, we're going to this, this house there's going to be this situation, but we've already kind of pre-planned some of this with them, so let us take the lead. You know, if they've got that situation in hand, ready to go, it makes, I'm sure it makes your job a lot easier, Joe. Uh, Jamie, that, that, that is a profoundly important uh, concept. And, and I think the idea of being able to empower folks who have been impacted by a natural disaster of some port, some port, some kind, to turn them from uh, I don't know what to do to I have a plan and I I can become my own responder in many ways is vitally important. I've seen that happen so many times over my career, um, where uh, a community is terribly impacted by a disaster of some sort and their infrastructure is destroyed and uh, they, they, they struggle to know what to do as well as a way to just simply communicate, organize and focus. And, and so oftentimes an, an outside entity has great value there simply to be a a, a piece of the infrastructure that allows people to re-engage and respond as opposed to just sit around and feel overwhelmed by the whole thing. So I, I think that's a, uh, an incredibly important concept that you brought up. I totally agree. And when, especially when you're talking about kids, Jamie, your point of giving them something to do, having a family plan where their job is to get the dog or grab this bag or do whatever. Because when people have something to do, they're gonna be focused on the results of that rather than you know, running around in circles and going, what do I do, what do I do? So, and having, and, and, and as you said, the most important thing is where is a safe place for them to go away from the home that may be involved and where everybody knows where they are. 
And uh, Jamie, you just put up a link. Yeah, that. I just thought I'd look up mental health disaster kit, and sure enough, the um, the SAMHSA.gov site, which is the um, federal um, mental health um, support group um, or agency or whatever um, of the, I think it's part of the National Institutes of Health, um, has a um, disaster kit for caregivers, parents, teachers, and others um, that you can download on your mobile phone. So I think that's pretty interesting that there, yeah, is, they- there are resources out there that um, somebody's actually thought of this. So that's a good thing. Yeah, SAMHSA has a lot of good resources. I've heard that through the years. And uh, that's a really good idea. And having something on your phone where if your phone's working, you can you can have quick access to it. But, you know, I think about those kids. <laughs> the kids that during um, round zero, the kids that were sending us letters and different things, cards, and we learned that sometimes kids are smarter than adults, <laughs> and they weren't necessarily, you know, involved in any way personally. But it was always like, take time for yourself, take care of yourself. And of course, we were somewhat remiss on doing that. But you know, <laughs> they're pretty smart little people, right, Joe? Yeah, I think kids tend not to overthink it like adults do. Oh, yeah. uh, for them, it's all about just tell me what it is that we need to get done and let's get it done. Uh, and, and so I think in many cases, that's a that's a huge plus. You know, adults sometimes get um, caught up in too much thinking about the, the consequences and the concerns and the anxieties, et cetera, as opposed to just do something. Uh, is often much better than um, in anything uh, regarding sitting around and worrying about it. Yeah, it gave me a whole new perspective of children, I'll tell you. So that's about a wrap, Jamie. Um, any any other comments from you on the topic? No, but uh, I think that the um, – I'll, I'll include links in the show notes to the SAMHSA site. There's also a, a downloadable mobile app for responders – um, to disasters to um, have that actually provides apparently a directory of local resources in different communities around the country um, for mental health resources. So um, that, that could be pretty handy to have on your mobile device going in and it's downloadable. So all the materials are downloadable. Even if you don't have a cell signal, the materials are in the app. So that's pretty, pretty helpful. Um, so I'll, I'll have links to that as well as some of the other resources from that agency um, and, and provide them there. Um, Joe, any final thoughts? No, I, I think you guys touched on it really quite well. I, I think it is indeed very much about preparation ahead of time and having a sense that you, you sort of know what to do or at least where to go to try to get some information about what your next steps need to be when you are feeling anxious or stressed or you can't get your medications or you can't get access to your uh, your counselor, therapist, et cetera. Um, it, it's the unknown that tends to drive a lot of that. And just a very little bit of work 
as you guys talked about earlier, really make a huge difference in folks' ability to feel like they have some control and they know what their next steps need to be. Yeah, it's definitely about having that agency over yourself and, and feeling of, the, of at least some limited amount of control um, over what's going on. I think it can make a huge difference for, for people. Um, Joe, you know, we, we talked, we've touched a couple of times on the show tonight about training and resources and special things that might have to do with mental health. But um, if, if somebody wanted a component of that in a disaster plan or disaster training event provided by Paragon, would that be something you guys could pull together for them? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're happy to in- include any aspects that folks uh, uh, find a need for. And uh, we certainly like to talk to folks so that we can prepare the, 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 the educational experience to be directed at the, the issues that they're really worried about. And where can folks find out more about what Paragon Medical Education Group has available and how, how to actually put together a customized program like that? Well, we would certainly ask them to just give us a call. They can find us on the web at Paragon Medical Education Group uh, and uh, on Facebook under the same name. uh, Or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast or the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. Excellent. Sam, where can folks find you? At all those places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 and disasterpodcast.com. What about you, Jamie? People can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations, so please friend or follow me. Look me up there. Um, and, of course, over at DisasterPodcast.com. Don't forget, there are links right there at the top of every episode page below the audio player that will allow you to subscribe to the show using your favorite podcast app. So whether you're on iOS or Android, uh, just click the appropriate link there, and it'll walk you right through the process. In some cases, a one-click process. So it's real easy to subscribe in that manner. So um, take advantage of that so you don't miss any future episodes. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks for putting this topic together. You know, I always laugh when we put together a topic like this, and I, I wonder if we're going to have enough to talk about. And here we are a half hour later, and we've, we've <laughs> rolled right through the topic. So uh, it seems like, as usual, the three of us never have a lack of uh, things to say. Well, no matter what we talk about, there's, you know, a lot of experience behind what we do, and we never run out of things to say, like you said. But, you know, when we're talking about situations like this, I think you've touched on it, that the more training the responders have on these kinds of, you know, you never know what you're going to do, but being prepared for as much as you can is really helpful. So stay safe out there.